calling all Swifties and champions of change. Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. Will be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird, Inc. CMS's Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com. Um, okay, so so let's do this. Uh, Joy, Bianca, hi! It's so very nice to he- to see you both. Bianca uh, in her morning routine, Joy in her uh, afternoon routine. It's uh, late in the evening for me in in Europe. So three different continents uh, in in one. Uh, video call. So the aim of this uh, meetup was for us to reflect a little bit on the last two years to see uh, what we've observed um, uh, in the digital health space. So maybe as a warm-up question, let's just start with, um, you know, how was your situation in the last two years during the pandemic, Bianca in Melbourne, Joy in the US and Mexico, and I'll also share a little bit about how uh, the whole situation unraveled here in Slovenia and in Europe. So, Joy, go ahead. I'll have, yep. So, I had a really unique timing. I moved to Mexico March of 2020, like literally 
leap year day, not having any clue what was going to happen. So I had just kind of been set up for a big life change already, but had no idea like what was coming down the pike. And so I spent the majority, like the first part of 2020 in like profound isolation. I knew I was in a new country. I didn't speak Spanish fluently. I still don't. And I had just moved into a new home and was like, oh my God, how, what just happened? <laughs> the borders closed. And I was like trying to figure my way, right? And just really using that time to connect and through Zoom and like meet up with people as much as possible um, online and take advantage of all of like the digital ways that we can stay connected. And so that time alone really like was a it, it forced me to be in a time of growth. And so I learned a lot just personally and professionally at that time. And it kind of impacted me on like how on, I'm just trying to think of like, how can I make a bigger impact and kind of create the community that I'm seeking. And so that sort of spawned a couple road trips because that ended up being like a safe way to travel, like to like, meet with people outdoors, but still kind of tap into them. And so I would, I mean, without like taking up too much time, but yeah, that was, it was like the balance between spending a lot of time alone and then finding ways to connect. Mm -hmm. um, we definitely are going to dig a little bit more deeper in that road trip of yours that you should write a book about but uh, Bianca yes, what's what, what's your situation at the moment I know that you, from the global perspective we've been looking at Australia and just trying to figure out like how can the whole vaccination uh, situation be as bad as it was there it's, it seemed that you didn't have the opportunity to get vaccinated for a very long time so what's the status now mm, that's right the status now is we have 90.4% of our population double vaccinated and we've opened up um, and we've all received letters in the mail to remind us to have our booster shots. Um, so that's good. Um, until recently, proof of vaccination was required in retail shops and all retail stores, but now those rules have recently changed. So in certain shops like hairdressers, you'll need to prove that you're vaccinated. Uh, in other shops, you just need to check in, you know, um, into the store. Uh, we see job openings now, um, more flexible working arrangements, and I think a country ready to lead innovation in the 21st century. We're doing really well at the moment. Um, about, you know, 10 years ago or more when I started in this industry, I thought that Australia was quite slow off the um, off the mark there, but now I think we've really, um, we're doing very well. Um, here in Melbourne, we had six lockdowns, um, which meant school closures, um, working from home if you had my husband was working at a hospital some of the time so um, it meant putting your career on hold looking after the kids doing um, home learning with them and um, the elimination strategy worked quite well until it stopped working and then we needed to rethink um, the strategy here so thinking back it's it feels like forever but I uh, went on a trip in January 2020 to Chattanooga Tennessee by myself flew across the world, multiple planes, went on this adventure um, to go to a conference just for a few days and then come home. But when I landed um, that same day, it was declared that there was a case at Melbourne Airport of COVID-19. Um, so that's really when it all began. And I'm just so glad I got that trip in beforehand because our borders have been closed until very recently. Um, you still cannot fly from Melbourne to Western Australia in the same country, but we're now accepting people from um, from international uh, international travel. So it's quite interesting. We can't see my grandmother in Perth, but we could have relatives from America come here. No. No, you cannot, unless you have an exemption. I mean, there are some circumstances where they will let you, but it has to be really, you know, you have to apply for that. But uh, no, the border is absolutely closed and we can't travel there at all. Um, so there was a lot of, I think, a feeling of isolation during this pandemic here in Melbourne where, um, so under the lockdown rule, when we were under lockdown, you could not travel past five kilometres from your home. We could not walk five kilometres from our home. 
we could not drive five kilometers from our or anything um my parents live 25 kilometers away so we couldn't see each other during those periods um but you know but my mum, who has a mother in Perth, you know, that's a lot, you know, a lot further distance and they still cannot actually see each other. So we're just hoping that things change. Apparently the border will open in about February of 2022. Um, but, you know, you never know. So we're just, uh, you know, trying to keep positive and, um, and just some perspective as well to remind ourselves that, you know, we're all going through something quite profound here and uh, we're all making sacrifices as well. No, now now you can travel as far as you like in Victoria, but it was until quite recently, and and uh, it slowly um, it slowly happened as vaccination rates went up. Uh, we were then given, uh, I guess, more rights in terms of what we could do. But that feeling of five kilometres, I have to say, it felt really restrictive, and I felt I felt a bit stuck. You know, yeah. I'm stuck in this area, and I can't go anywhere else. Um, that being said, we didn't have police marching down the street. We didn't have uh, robotic dogs walking down patrolling us. Um, but, you know, there was a sense that, you know, um, that we're going to stick by the rules and, um, and do this. And, and uh, it worked very well for a long time. Victorians did amazing in terms of the elimination strategy. We had zero cases uh, for a while and, um, and then it just stopped working. And so, yeah, we, we needed to do something else. But vaccination rate's really great and it's looking good. Yeah, you really do have an amazing situation because like here, uh, when, when the pandemic began in 2020, we were clearly very scared, as was the rest of the world. So uh, for a while in the first wave, Slovenia was doing amazingly. We were number one in the way the pandemic was managed, in the number uh, of cases that we managed to keep. Uh, so the numbers were really low and the situation normalized a lot, but then the government changed and everything just went downhill and it's been bad ever since. Like the there were protests that started against the government 87 weeks ago. So for 87 Fridays in a row, we've had protests every Friday, uh, very constructive uh, type of protests. So with uh, uh, public forums, with the discussions, with intellectuals uh, speaking out on what's not uh, being done right. At the same time, you know, when, when the whole restrictions uh, related to either you have to be vaccinated or tested um, or have had had to have COVID to be able to go to some institutions. Uh, after that was implemented, uh, we had an additional set of different protesters that started happening on Wednesdays. So um, for a while, Slovenia was actually the number one country that was worse off uh, based on the number of new cases weekly. At the moment, we have 56% of people that are fully vaccinated twice. Um, and the number of people that's vaccinated at least once is only 3% more, so 59%. Uh, so still very low. Uh, so yeah, full hospitals, 33.8% uh, of the people that get tested are positive. So really, really, really high numbers. So, and I wish uh, that things were, were better um, on that end, yeah. Um, I wonder why, uh, Tiaja, the vaccination um, approach here with with those numbers, I mean, that's that's good numbers, right, 50%. We have 90.4% in Australia. So I'm wondering the difference here in strategy. I mean, it's maybe not something we could get to the, the bottom, of, bottom of today, but it's, I'm definitely curious about... Um, the different strategies that we use to to encourage people to get vaccinated. Yeah, I think like on a global level, we heard a lot about that in the last two years. You know, what 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 worked, what didn't, uh, what was the attitude of the government towards the the public. And here, I think that that seems to be one of the biggest uh, critiques that we we see. So the attitude that the government has towards. Uh, um, the citizens, is, it's very paternalistic, it's very um, disrespectful. I did, this is actually not 
a too strong word. It's just disrespectful. So there's also, you know, a lot of corruption cases that have uh, been uh, present and revealed in the media with the protective equipment, with um, just things that have happened in the history because we've got a lot of old faces uh, on the political stage at the moment. So when you combine all that and when the public trust is eroded, uh, obviously you can expect people to to follow the leaders that they don't respect and if there's no there's a lack of respect on both ends the results can't be good so that's just the general uh, impression Jazza, it makes me curious i wonder if those protests are are actually like contributing to the stats around the country too like are they spreader events where like if people are gathered together are is, are they actually there spreading covid <laughs> Um, it's a good question. I wouldn't want to speculate uh, about that, but in theory, those uh, you know the protests that started um, on Fridays they tend to be quite safe. So when the gathering was prohibited, basically people were using bikes to just bike around the capital and protest in that sort of a manner. And when that was kind of prohibited also, they started to, to use cars. Um, now it's you can be vaccinated anyway. So on Wednesdays, you protest against the, the, the measures. Um, and I'm sure that there's less people that are not vaccinated present on Wednesdays. Um, but um, yeah, I, it, it could be... I'm. Yeah, I wouldn't want to speculate around that. Yeah. Hmm. Really interesting. You know, it was um, there was definitely a, a feeling during the uh, the lockdowns here of that that sense of of maybe distrust or you know even in Australia, um, what are they doing with these lockdowns? You know, it's very it feels very strict, um, but the, the reality was that we were not going to be able to, we weren't going to get out of lockdown until we've got vaccinated. That was the message, mm-hmm. right? We're gonna open up once you get vaccinated and, and we're not opening up unless you do. And there was that feeling, you know, we need to learn to live. This is what they were saying. We need to learn to live with COVID because we weren't used to living with COVID. You know, no one we knew had COVID, right? Because the elimination strategy was so effective. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not until very recently I heard that someone that I know of has recently had COVID and they're, they're fine because they were va- vaccinated and whatever, but um, that that was what it was like here. You know, it was this, this elimination strategy. You didn't really know anyone who had it. You hadn't heard of, you know, of that. Um, but we weren't going to get out of it unless we had the vaccine. That, that's what the feeling was. Over I here. wish I could say the same for where I am because I feel like I've known so many people. I run into so many people that have had it or have had it multiple times. They've been vaccinated and boosted and still got it. And I think that for me in particular, kind of straddling the borders between Mexico and California and seeing the different countries manage it differently, like to your point earlier, like there, the National Guard in Mexico was roaming the streets. Like I was scared to go outside when it was first, the first lockdown went into effect because there were trucks with men in machine guns that were roaming the streets that literally were like, what are you doing? Go back home. And I was like, yep, don't want to be part of that. Message received, going home. And then, you know, you could, I could cross only for essential reasons, which for me was a dentist appointment. Um, and to see on the other side that people weren't wearing masks or just sort of like out at the park, you know, like kind of it felt like wasn't being taken seriously in parts of San Diego and and other parts of California where like they were just angry and just felt like they weren't going to manage it. And so to go, I mean, where we stand now, California now has an indoor mask mandate put reinstated. And I don't know how many times this is, you know, has happened over the course of the last two years, but like as many times as they thought that we could like open back up and go back to normal, COVID has come back and said, no, not yet. We're not ready for that. And it has not gone away here in Mexico where like, and there's never been an issue around mask wearing or getting your temperature taken before you go into any retail store there was never any controversy about you know whether it was the right thing to do and sitting here and 
Also, knowing that Mexico is a destination place where people travel and come on their vacations, that when it did start to open up in the U.S., that people unvaccinated mostly were coming to Mexico for their holidays because they could essentially like get away with it, right? Like the U.S. was in lockdown, but Mexico not so much. And I, I honestly, like, it was really hard to watch because it just felt like, oh, okay, you're going to come. Like, if you don't think it's a big deal, you're, you can come and potentially spread it to communities for, you know, folks that don't have as many resources and aren't in a position to not work. Like, they have to put themselves out there because it's their way of living. And, you know, and just, like, spreading it more and more. It's like, it, it was really hard to watch and say like, oh yeah, good for you for going to Cancun or Cabo or Tulum for your vacation and that's, and then potentially spreading this disease even farther. Mm -hmm. yeah, I want to just uh, add two comments uh, related to this topic and then f hopefully we can move uh, either to a little bit more pleasant things such as digital health and what we've, we've been doing uh, on that front. But uh, one of the things that I thought was quite uh, um interesting to to observe from the sociological perspective uh, during all this time was that uh, in Europe because you've got so many different healthcare systems and still diverse cultures um, there was a lot of polarization because obviously you can read today how other countries are managing the pandemic and there was no uh, unifying uh, approach to how the pandemic is going to be handled there, there was a lot of diversity in how Sweden did it in how Austria did it in how Slovenia did it and then you know if you already have a situation where the people don't trust their leaders and they can compare what other leaders are doing not taking into account the culture uh, of another country uh, that can cause additional dissatisfaction because uh, some country is re less restrictive than your country is and you know throughout the interviews that I've been doing uh, this year I thought that the case of Taiwan was really interesting because Taiwan again was super successful in 2020 they uh, were successful because it's an island, because they had um, um, experience with uh, an epidemic situation in the past. So they, they knew that they need to go into lockdown very fast. They're not a member of WHO, so they didn't have to comply with the recommendations that the WHO did. But what ended up happening in 2021 was that they had a huge spike in cases because, um, because the pandemic was handled really well and there weren't many cases when the vaccines came out nobody wanted to get vaccinated because there was no COVID and nobody felt the need that they should get vaccinated and then when a, va a wave actually happened and people obviously became interested in uh, getting vaccinated the the vaccine supply was too small to vaccinate enough people so you know you ran into the whole um, uh, wave of COVID it's again under control now but it like to me it did show to how interesting it is that um, you know the human psychology uh, is is so so very important when it comes to these topics and how you talk to people and how you communicate and how can you um, convey a message so it, it's well received. Um, but um, maybe Joy, going back to your road trip, tell tell us a little bit more about about that. What was that all about? Sure about that what was that all about well so i mean if we're it started in 2020 i went with just me and my dog and i was like we went around to eight different states and figured that that was a, a, a safe way to travel i literally like brought my tent and camped you know in different national parks or state parks and actually like visited friends but like camped on the side of their house instead of like you know coming into their safe space inside and i got super inspired by that um and thought, how can I make that something that is accessible for the community? It felt like a really empowering time for me and felt like I was like, this is just something that helped me, one, connect with nature, one, two, connect with myself, and then also like the, the family, friends, and colleagues that are really important to me. And I just thought, this is too awesome to not share. And so at the very beginning of 2021, I was able to secure a collaboration with HIMSS um, I shared the idea that I had, which was, hey, how cool would it be if we created like a road trip to hymns with setting the intention that like COVID's not going to last forever. We're hopeful that a vaccine 
will be made available. And then by the summertime, we can maybe start to um, connect all of these communities again. And so they got really excited about it. We like it, it was officially became a thing. And so I started coordinating with all of the HIMS regional chapters across the country um, along this like route. And we basically traveled through 32 states starting in May. So as soon as I got my second vaccination and waited two weeks for you know, the right time. I basically started in California, went all the way across the southern states, up the east coast, and back across the northern states, and then finished the road trip at Hims in the first week of August. And so through that, yeah, like I said, it was 32 states. We facilitated more than 20 hikes and invited women and, and community members in health IT, like mostly connected through those Hims regional chapters to join us on outdoor hikes in beautiful parts of their region um, and got to talk to some amazing people and kind of facilitate like uh, not the full reopening, but just like a way for people to get out of their COVID bubbles. You know, at that time, it was a really like unique, special time. And then um, be there in person to share all of that with, you know, at the at the first like in-person conference again in august so what were the discussions like what were the discussions like what did you guys talk about yeah everyone was sharing their experience through covid so i feel like i got this really unique opportunity to see like how did people in texas handle it how about in tennessee or what about out in the like the lakes of of new york and so you know i got to kind of witness other people's bubbles and so they were talking about just struggles they had. A lot of them had to do with childcare and the transition into like take, managing everything, right? Of like having to manage their kids and their work and the home life and like what were the struggles with all of that. Um, people talked a lot about their mental health, what they were doing to just sort of like stay sane um, and whether it was, you know, getting outdoors or knitting or learning how to make margaritas. Like it was, it was interesting. And then also, um, you know, just like unique opportunities that they're doing with their work. Like how has their work life and digital, like digital health and technology been changing. And so, yeah, I feel really fortunate. It was, that, that was, that was a really special time. <laughs> like for sure bucket list item of my life. <laughs> That's amazing, Joy. It really is. I mean, to even you know, blows my mind to think about traveling. <laughs> you know, that distance. We've never been on a road trip before, um, ever. We always take the plane. Um, so that's that's amazing. Had you done anything like that before? And obviously, you're a very good driver to to do that. <laughs> well, so on the very fr the first round of the road trip, I was in a Prius, and it was just me and my dog. But when I came back, I traded wow. it in for um, a four wheel drive. I got a Forerunner, which maybe that doesn't mean much to anybody. But in Mexico, it's like the roads aren't as well paved. There's way more potholes, and it just made me feel oh, safer. But in order to do this big trip, I actually thought like, well, we're gonna have luggage, we're gonna need more space. I actually learned how to haul a trailer. So I got a trailer, a 20 foot trailer and hitched it on to the back of my car and hauled that. And I would say that was the biggest challenge because I had never done, like it was all girls and, our, and my dog, right? Like I had never done anything like that before. It was super intimidating and parking that thing, turning it around, finding the right route that would like, you know, accommodate us were parts of the challenges. And I have to say, I did have to call AAA to, a few times to help me out of a, a couple jams I got myself into. So, so it was a year of practical skills. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a book year for you, Bianca, right? It was, it was, um, I'd been working on this book for five years and then I just decided this year is the year I'm publishing the book. Congratulations. And That's I did it and I did it in the most, <laughs> thank you. And I did it in an unconventional way, of course, you know, I don't follow the status quo usually. So I uh, <laughs> decided to publish it as a digital book, given its digital health. I thought I would do it that way, but make it that people could print it if they like. And then, you know, in the future, I could make that option as well, you know, that it that it could be sent out. But with all the costs of actually sending a book to, say, America or Slovenia, it would I would have to charge 
you know, I don't know how much to get that book to the person. And it just seemed incredibly complicated. So um, digital publishing was actually really good. And uh, I had uh, fantastic editors, Jack Merthyr and Tom Castles. Um, you know, they, they do a lot of work in digital health. They're digital health journalists. And uh, we worked together and they helped me turn a 300-page book into a 77-page book. So we got to the point, we kept it um, nice and concise. It's all about the digital health revolution, making the digital health revolution and all the revolutions that are going to, you know, be involved in this digital health revolution. So we talk about the technological revolution, which is the, the AI revolution, scientific revolution, personalized medicine, precision medicine, cultural, so the change in how we think and what we want as, a, as societies, and clinical revolution is the significant change in clinical practice that is going to take place. Um, and it's essentially a law and philosophy book um, all about the evolution of law and philosophy that will precede the digital health revolution. It was a lot of fun. Can you be a little <laughs> bit more specific about, you know, what is the legal perspective on digital health? Because, I mean, we, we had an interview this year. I interviewed you about what is digital yes. health law. Um, and I think that's especially very... Uh, gives you something to think when it comes to topics such as data ownership, um, data privacy, what does it mean to own the data? When you take the legal perspective of that, you know, just the word is yours. Tell us more about that. Well, um, in really simple terms, digital health law has four branches. And so a lot of the time we talk about one of the branches, which, which is substantive law or compliance, but there are these other branches that I've been spending a lot of time looking at and um, things like statutory interpretation. So looking at the meaning of words within legislation. Um, there's also an assessment of lawmaking processes. Um, and then also the philosophical, ethical side of things, you know, looking also at the nature of law. What is the function of law in society? How is it meant to govern us? Um, what's working well? What isn't working well? Um, so that's really digital health law. And this book is going into uh, in many ways, the philosophical aspects, right? The nature of law and lawmaking. So two of the four branches that uh, that are there. Um, in terms of ownership, you know, you've brought up the discussion of data ownership, right? And this is probably um, one of the very contested questions in digital health and broadly as we're, you know, living in the internet of things. And um, this, is not gonna, this is not a question that's going to be resolved anytime soon. But when I think about the question of data ownership and I think about it from a legal perspective, um, a couple of observations. One is it's a long, there's going to be a long and complex road ahead on this discussion um, because we need to consider the opportunities and costs in any given approach and certainly lawmakers will have to. Um, and just like, you know, the scales that we use to represent law, right, um, you know, representing the field of law. Law is a balancing of various diverse perspectives and, and oftentimes completely opposing views of how we should function as humans and as society have to be somehow balanced by law. And, and sometimes we find that the answer actually exists in the middle of those polar perspectives. Um, so in this context, you've got on the one hand people who say that patients should own their data or consumers, and and those who state that the doctor and the third parties should own the data, right? Um, when I ask other lawyers about this topic, they ask me a question back, which is why does there need to be an owner? Why does there need to be an owner? Um, and my answer to that is, well, the concept of there being no owner for data is actually foreign to common law. Um, and they return, well, you know, we're legislating. The, the predominant form of law today is legislation, not case law. Um, and so legislation does not actually reflect what the common law, case law precedent reflects. Um, and they argue that legislation reflects something called a bundle of rights conception of data ownership, meaning that um, we're looking at the rights that each party has in the data rather than focusing our efforts on who owns it, right? Who, who actually owns the data. But the bottom line is that either way, whether 
we agree on the topic or not of ownership and its meaning, we can't get around the need to determine um, if we should be allowed to sell our data, so if we can make money from it, um, and whether this is similar to uh, commodification of the human, um, so which is not supported in many countries. Like in Australia, we can't sell our eggs, right, and, and uh, surrogacy and, and um, selling of eggs. It's, it's altruistic. Um, you, can't, so you can't sell your eggs here in Australia. That is illegal. Um, and surrogacy is altruistic. So you cannot, you cannot make money. You're only paid for reasonable expenses, such as travel costs. Um, so in some areas, the law tells us that we can't sell ourselves now, another question is whether selling data is like, our data is like selling ourselves. Now, it's a whole nother, you know, uh, discussion. Um, so in some respects, the law says you can't do this. Um, but then whether that's reflected across the law is subject to varying opinions and arguments because you could say that in other respects, it does permit a form of commodification of the human. Um, and that's where it gets really interesting and challenging. Um, you know, a few years ago, I wrote for LexisNexis, which is a publishing house for um, for lawyers, and I wrote an article about this topic. And what I attempted to do it was for a legal audience. Um, what I attempted to do was to define the meaning of ownership according to various constructions, so that is plausible meanings for the word ownership. And I tried to run an argument for each uh, definition based on case law and legislation and commentary um so i'd personally love to see more articles like that and people coming in and saying bianca you're wrong because of abc or um you know this is how we, we should think of it and, and just more articles like that um i'd also like to see articles talking more about practically how it will work you know eric topol published one a few years ago about the practical side of things, how it would work with data ownership, um, what, what his um, perspective was. And I thought that was really good. I really enjoyed that. Um, also, we need some uh, pieces out there written about the times it's gone wrong, you know, the times where a patient has sued a doctor to find out specific methodologies and processes that they used to diagnose them with a condition. There's one case that I'm thinking of right now where a person who was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder wanted to understand the exact steps that, their, that the psychiatrist took to diagnose them with narcissistic personality disorder. And they were um, you know, so determined, the matter actually went to court to see whether they could gain access not only to their um, health information but also to the method. Um, so that's one side of things. But we also want to see discussion of cases in the times where patients were very unjustly um, refused access even though they had a reasonable basis for it. Mm -hmm. um, and they were acting reasonably. You, but, you, you mentioned um, one very important word two times, and that's access. And I think that that often gets uh, maybe confused uh, in, in the discourse because what patient, patients want is access uh, to their data, that they can share their data, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they want to be the sole owner of the data. I think, you know, from the patient perspective, it's scary to think that, you know, now I own the data, which means I have to take care of the data. I can't lose the data. It has to be safe. Uh, and in the digital form, that means that I have to be aware of all the cybersecurity risks that I might run into. Um, but, um, yeah, access is also something that is changing a lot uh, in, in recent years. Yeah. And I mean, if I just look at some of the examples uh, that have happened uh, and reflecting on what I found out or saw in the last two years, it was the, the open notes in the US where now you have to mm -hmm. um, have uh, access to the data. So doctors need to have you uh, access to your notes. It was quite shocking for me to learn that in Denmark, patients have had access to doctor's notes since 1987. So, you know, 1987, 34 years. So I yeah. think that's pretty amazing. Um, and at the same time, if I count into that all the interoperability challenges, I do think that, you know, the way forward is going to be for patients to be able to accumulate their own data and do 
whatever they want to do with that, share it with whomever they would like so that data gets gets analyzed. So I think, Joy, you also mm-hmm. wanted to say something. Yeah, there, well, there's a couple things that are coming up for me. And one is like in the U.S., we've got this new access law where providers are required by law to give patients access to their records, which is amazing. But I know that some healthcare providers are also challenged with our HIPAA laws. And so like the overlap between like HIPAA privacy rules and the need to provide access is um, kind of murky for especially people that who don't study regulation or study law it can be like a kind of confusing on how do you implement these things. Um, but I think that the intent behind them are, are really great and I'm glad to see it. But the thing that I was thinking about was, um, and I don't know how, how much you guys have access to this and where you're from, but like in San Diego in particular, there's um, several like data libraries. And so they're not necessarily tied to an individual organization or um, a government entity or whatever. They're this like independently owned housing facility, essentially, of like clean, accurate data so that when people want to ask questions of it or do particular projects with it, they literally like check it out. And it's not unique just to healthcare. It can be, you know, information about pets or libraries or, you know, all all kinds of stuff. Um, And I, I kind of like that idea. And I don't know how willing private industry would be, you know, would be to participate in such a concept. But the idea that like once you have these data sets, that, you know, they become available for people to make use of them for all kinds of different purposes. And mm-hmm. I feel like that might be, like, at, legally, I don't know what would be involved. I know folks would be a little bit hesitant to share data that was very, you know, hard to get probably in the first place. But I do like the concept of, like, hey, once we have it, how can we put it to the most use? Answer. <laughs> So I can I can provide like two two potential answers related to healthcare in this regard. So basically, what you're referring to is secondary use of data, which is especially huge. I would say that in the pharma industry, so you want to use data for something else than it was initially produced for. So using patient data for research, and um, in Taiwan, for example, they also have been uh, digital for a very long time, had electronic health records, and there you actually have research centers like that. But as far as I'm aware, and it was explained to me, when you go into the research center, you can't bring anything with you. So you literally need to know what you're interested in. When you um, mine the data, you have to remember everything that you mined and what kind of findings you, you got. But it is there. So there is this healthcare data library that you can use for research. And at the same time, um, in in Europe, uh, Finland is a good example where the sharing and the use of data is, um, uh, is uh, well designed. So you've got an organization called FinData that you can apply to for research purposes, and then you either get ex- uh, granted or denied access, so you can do further research. But on a global, uh, on a more broader level, there's still a lot of open questions on how can we, how can we scale this, uh, these kinds of approaches. Mm, very interesting. And you know, here in Australia, we have secondary use of data frameworks and uh, a whole range of legislation that deals with, um, with with data and how it can be used for public health purposes. So, it's really interesting. I like this, uh, you know, discussion of digital health across jurisdictions and and comparing and contrasting the various approaches. And that's something that I think Tiaja, you've really championed, championed um, with your podcast, which is talking about the the uh, various approaches by different jurisdictions, which is fantastic. I know, Chaza, can you tell us about your past couple of years? I feel like we haven't had a chance to, to hear your side of the story. <laughs> yeah, so, um, I mean, pandemic-wise, when uh, just one week before the pandemic uh, started, I went back to work because I, I was on a maternity leave for a year. That's that's what you get here. So you basically get a year off. Um, and 
parents can so the mother and father can divide that time between each other but like you you have the time to be uh, at home daycare starts after the first year uh, of the child's year and i really like comparisons of that access you know across the world again like in austria you get between one and two years um in sweden uh, both parents get i think 16 or 18 months off so i always you know, I'm very interested to see those examples because I know how little time mothers in the U.S. get um, uh, in that regard. So going back um, a week in, uh, the, the pandemic started, so it was really tough for me to just uh, really start start uh, working. But um, just podcast and digital health-wise, uh, one project that was a little bit uh, larger for me in 2021 was the documentary about uh, medication safety. This is a topic that I've been interested uh, for several years. I did a master's degree in how different hospitals on different uh, levels, so primary, secondary, tertiary care, how they take care of medications. And um, uh, in the healthcare IT company that I work for, I'm in the medication management uh, team. So we provide uh, the electronic prescribing and medication management system for hospitals. And I'm, I'm now learning about all the challenges uh, from the side of pharmacists, from the side of doctors as well, because, you know, I as a chronic patient mostly see these things from the, uh, from the patient perspective. So in the documentary, uh, which is called Overdose, I was exploring what uh, are the causes that medication management is still very difficult today. And it's difficult because of the processes. It's difficult because any technology that you try to implement is first and foremost a cultural change. So you need a lot of preparations for the implementations. You need to train people. Uh, you need to get the buy-in so people in the end use the software. There's challenges such as um, look-alike names, uh, drugs that have very similar um, uh, packaging and all that can really cause problems and errors uh, in the medication uh, management space. And there's uh, a lot of deaths uh, related to medication administration errors, uh, prescription errors. And um, yeah, I would uh, just encourage everyone to really look at the documentary uh, that was recorded with uh, 15 experts from 10 countries. I again took you know the, a very international approach because I was again interested in to see to which extent do um, do the views on medication management differs, and it turns out that it's very similar in many cases. A huge uh, challenge is interoperability. So the fact that when a patient enters an ER or gets to to the hospital, uh, it's very hard for the clinical staff there to know what exactly does the patient take because there's no connection with the GP. Um, UK is, get, is making great strides in this regard, but in essence, uh, in the US and Canada, with the opioid crisis, one of the reasons was that you know it was impossible for for doctors to know if a patient that came in for pain management, if it, he or she was already in a different ER to get another prescription. So just understanding how um, the patient medication history can impact what you're going to prescribe and what kind of mistakes um, can happen mm -hmm. is, is huge. Not to mention the challenges that uh, uh, EHRs and electronic uh, systems bring with uh, alerting, with the burden for the doctors. It's, uh, it's a hugely complex topic. It is very complex, very interesting. Also interested in the patient responsibility there as well. Um, Tiaja, what are the key things that need to be resolved to reduce patient harm to, you know, due to medications? I mean, you mentioned interoperability. Is there anything else that comes to mind? Um, I guess one of the things that I think is quite interesting, or was at least um, like a little bit of an epiphany to me was when Abdulelah Al-Hawsawi, who's from Saudi Arabia, he's a, a huge expert in patient safety and reducing patient harm. And he said that kind of the missing piece in the whole medication management story is really the patient. So re knowing the complexity 
the clinical environment presents, uh, knowing that when you get into the hospital, you're not really necessarily getting into a safe space. You know, you've got nurses there that are overburdened. You've got doctors there that are busy, especially now in the COVID time. So mistakes can happen really, really quickly. So it's really important that you or your family is really mindful of what's happening. Is the nurse giving you the right drug is um you know is everything happening the way it was said uh, it is and it's for the patient when you're in a vulnerable position it can be a little bit hard to comprehend everything that's happening which is why it's so good that if you have the chance that you've got some support a family or a friend there that can also kind of uh, be in the process very mindfully not because we would distrust the, the the clinical staff that's absolutely not the case but just being uh knowing that the complexity of the clinical environment is what can cause um, challenges. In the U.S., uh, many healthcare institutions already use closed-loop medication management systems, which means that um, the medications are also checked with barcoding. So the patient has a barcode, the, the drug has a barcode, and you scan both before giving it to the patient. But... Um, many other uh, institutions don't have that. So you really need to be a very uh, present and mindful for patients. And that I think it's something that we still need to kind of adopt. But it's, it's, it, that also requires a cultural shift uh, with where more collaboration among the clinical staff and the patient is normal. I think it's still very hard to be uh, to speak up, you know, as a patient because you know your life is in danger. You're, you're scared, and it's just it's you. You're not your normal normal self, and it's easy to say that we need collaboration. But when you look at what exactly does that mean, it becomes much more complicated. Similarly, as uh, when we talked about, you know, what does it mean to own your data and who should own it. Yes, it's very hard to speak up as a patient. And I think, um, you know, people need to be mindful of that and education, um, awareness of this and uh, is really important. And we mentioned family support. I mean, some of us have family support, others don't. So that's a challenge uh, as well, especially if someone's sick, um, maybe not thinking clearly and, um, and they're now in the hospital environment, perhaps by themselves. Um, so, you know, there's a lot, a lot of work there that we can be doing to empower patients, you know. I think we've all been there. We've all been in that situation. And speaking of empowerment, Joy, you know, one of your basically focus of the the Hit Like a Girl podcast is all about women empowerment, uh, femtech. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what kind of findings did you uh, came across in 2021? How would you condense that Oh my gosh. So I have learned a lot. I've met some really amazing women and just kind of learned a lot about just what we're facing as a group of people, mostly in the U.S., but, you know, some out international. But some of the stats have been just kind of profound. Like one thing I've learned is that women, especially like millennial age and uh, younger, are getting more education and are like performing, outperforming their male counterparts. And so turns out that within the next decade, 70% of our workforce is meant to be women. And so when I think about like, okay, how do we treat the women in the, the workforce now? And how is that going to have to systematically kind of change and evolve over time to address so that like people within C-suites or leadership positions, it's actually reflecting, you know, the the community of people that's actually in the workforce. And we have a lot of work to do. That's essentially what I've, like, There, there's a lot of work being done, but there is a lot of work still yet to do. And so some of the things that have been really inspired by some of the technology and research that has been uh, pointed at women specifically, so in for women's health, I've seen a lot of uh, focus on like um, including I mean, one targeted therapeutics, making sure that there's um, more available for different types of cancer. Like that has been really, I don't know, encouraging. More research and products available and studies on endometriosis, something that affects 
you know, mostly women, like it's 99 like, of the folks that have endometriosis are women. Um, I'm more focused on menopause and supporting women through IVF treatment and just throughout their whole stage of their lifetime. It's been interesting to kind of think about how a lot of the technology apps or resources available for women have this lens that has to do with reproduction. Um, but we are much more than just being moms. Like being moms is a big part of being a woman, but it's not the only part. And so one thing I've been really like um, inspired by is to see technologies for women as they age. Like how can they be empowered as they're on the road through going through menopause? Um, and also some of the you know, other encouraging stuff is that like, even though the baseline has been relatively low for investment in women founded organizations, um, but the stats are improving, that there has been a shift in the needle, like um, that there is more investment funds going to women led organizations, which is good, but it's like, it's good to see progress and also know that we still have a, a long way to go. Mm -hmm. We haven't uh, talked a lot about, you know, the, the position of women, uh, but I think in the pandemic that has also become one of the, the bigger topics uh, with women, especially in the US, uh, more often uh, leaving the workforce because they had to take care of the, ki uh, the, the children. And I must say uh, that, yeah, looking at the global picture, it's quite uh, worrisome to see Uh, how the on the one hand there's this whole movement about women quotas about women engagement about supporting entrepreneurship um, of women and on the same on the same in the same society you know you've got Texas that uh, accepted the new abortion law where you know, after six weeks, you can't have an abortion. You've got a similar case in Poland where women basically can't get an abortion at, um, unless it was uh, an incest or a, or, a, or a rape case. So it's, uh, you know, from that perspective, I see that we still have a lot of work to do in the society when it comes to uh, what does it mean to, to have rights as a woman in, in this society. Right. Well, and the other thing is looking at maternal and infant mortality rates in the U.S. Like, I learned that an American woman is 15% more likely to die during childbirth now than her mother was in, you know, in just one generation before. And so it's, it's not really, we have not made it a particularly safe place for women to have kids in the United States, specifically for brown and black people and, you know, underrepresented communities. And so it's, it's a harsh reality when you think about it, when there's certain states that have access to care and others that don't even have access to education. It's not like, like there's a pro prohibition on even talking about certain things. And so that is, that's a little bit of a tough pill to swallow. And you know, speaking of pills, I believe that it was this last week that the abortion pill by mail just got approved so that women around the country, if they live in states that approve of them getting it, are able to get an abortion pill through mail, but not if they're in particular states. So um, I don't know what this year is going to bring. I mean, we're, we're close to potentially overturning Roe. And like, I feel like without having the balance of like, okay, well, we're going to provide child care or other types of resources for families. Um, we're really kind of setting people up for failure, um, which is pretty unfortunate. Mm. A huge topic, I guess, for equality. And I'm sure, Bianca, um, you know, you in, in um, 2021 was a year uh, for your book. But I guess a lot of people got to know you in 2020, including me, because you organized an event, Vo Voice for Equality. So uh, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, what does equality mean to you and how, how do you observe the topic? You know, it's it's a really complex topic, I guess. I don't see it as uh, meaning anything um, in particular. 
um, other than finding that balance in a way that's reasonable and ethical and moral and it supports people. Um, but also we need to respect varying opinions as well about uh, and values. So it's about respecting those values but at the same time keeping people safe and I think that's really important. So we need to keep people safe and healthy and uh, and that's a value that I personally hold. Um, but, um, you know, equality... Um, you know, it has a particular meaning um, in law and it's used in law all the time. And uh, it has, um, you know, a lot of people like to talk about equity instead of equality, right, rather than uh, talking about us as being equal because a lot of people say well, we're not equal. We don't, we come from different places. And um, to say that we're equal is actually disregarding who we are and, and our circumstances. Um, when I say equality and we're equal I mean in the terms of as human beings we're all human beings and so that's where I begin you know and so as human beings I believe in certain things and certain um, protections that we should have um, and so that's how I talk about the the meaning of equality um, but you know a, a lot of a lot of talking about equity um, so how can we ensure that um, we're providing access to internet and yeah, to healthcare to um, you know, all these different things for people who otherwise wouldn't have access. Uh, and it's such an important topic. It always will be. It always, you know, uh, it, it, I think it always should be front and centre, um, especially as we move towards 21st century digital health. You know, we do need to be thinking about this. So I did run um, three events, Voice for Equality, and um, one was with Amazon and um you know, it, it was great. It was really great. And uh, Tiaja, thank you for being part of that as well, as well as the book, because you were writing the book as well. So, um, uh. Yeah, true. But it's, uh, yeah. I I'm, mean, um, we're, we're slowly going to finish off this discussion. But I think that, you know, when we, we talk about digital health innovation, at least for me, I, I like the optimism. I like the, the innovation that's happening, the disruption, looking at the U.S. Uh, healthcare market, which, I mean, has more problems than one could describe in a week. Uh, but at the same time, there's so much uh, new ideas coming up. Uh, you can see the disruption with now. A lot of digital health uh, companies are not trying to sell into providers, but are becoming providers, which on the long run, to me, means that a lot of things might change because that gives you a lot of uh, a different power than if you just, you know, provide an app to to an already existing power player on the market. But I always, th always think um, when it comes to these innovations, who is going to be able to, to access it? And I always wonder if with the increase of digital technologies, are we... Um, just you know increasing the gap between the well-off wealthy and healthy and those that can't access uh, or afford those technologies and maybe that also goes to the fact that you know when you've got digital health startups when they scale and when they decide to uh, which market they're going to go to they look at that from the business perspective and I'm from the country with two million people and you know I see all these amazing things that I'm like of course nobody's gonna come to a country with so many it's just like two million people so okay yeah I'm, I'm gonna move to 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 the US for a while to be able to to get a VR headset and some mental health well-being app because I'm super curious about how, how that actually looks like um, but um, I don't know should we uh, wrap up slowly what what do you guys want to say as some of the last words? I'll go. I think that the, the thing that comes to mind is um, pulled from a conversation from one of the most recent podcast episodes. I got an opportunity to interview a woman from HHS. She was a, you know, a part of regional health and human services for the U.S. government. She brought up a term around digital empathy, that like as we go and move towards more digital health, we need to, to your point, have more empathy about who has access to that and how can we incorporate that into our like our business model because other if we don't have empathy or digital empathy we're good, essentially going to be creating more of a divide and I don't think that's what any of us want so that's excellent and and uh, something I'm talking about at the moment is um, multidisciplinary digital health strategies 
Right, so being able to take um, the perspectives from various disciplines, medicine, science, psychology, business, law, uh, commerce, and being able to put that into a cohesive strategy where you can you know, uh, move forward as a business uh, and hopefully succeed, but you know, take those various perspectives um, on board. So I'm going to be running some classes on that in 2022 um, online. Uh, and you know it's it's really important because we have to you know to some degree we have to work together we can't have these silos um and and we need to uh, bring it all together somehow which can be very challenging so i'm going to provide a guide in in how to do that it's been a really fantastic discussion this morning uh for me it's morning (laughs) (laughs) midday for me yeah i'm so grateful to be connected to both of you (laughs) This has been great. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And you know, to think we're on the other sides of the world and we're here together online, um, this is what we need, more of this, um, more of these kinds of discussions, which you're both, you know, you're both creating that on your channels. And, as um, are you. It's just really great. <laughs> yes, I'm trying as well. <laughs> so we're in 52 countries, of Voice of Law podcast, and and growing and um it's just great to to be able to to speak globally um and you know let's continue the discussion from here we could we could chat all day i think, <laughs> I think you're right it's there's true. a lot we haven't touched on and we'll debate yeah. that uh i guess in a, in a separate discussions and think of new ways that we could uh, again work together oh, yes. and exchange experiences maybe yeah. end of 2022 Tiasha, imagine oh, all of us, if we could get a sponsor and do a data ownership debate, I think that would be amazing. You know, let's get some skulls from Harvard, Oxford, and then some of the other unis that are lesser known um, and from all around the world and debate data ownership the way it should be done. I think that that's something I'd love to do. <laughs> an, idea, an idea to discuss. Um, okay, so thanks, guys. And um, thanks, you know, everyone that uh, joined the, the discussion today. And uh, let's continue uh, the discussion. We can all connect on LinkedIn and uh, uh, hopefully some new projects and new ideas can come out of this. Thanks. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission-driven, which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com.